This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hite. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Ken's trip to Dundacron. Horse meat and arms dealing. Structure as a design tool. And an elegy for field books. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. Welcome to another exciting podcast where Ken and Robin talk about stuff, and the stuff which we will first endeavor to talk about arises from Ken's trip to a fabled game convention out on the West Coast, which would be Dundracon. I've never been to Dundracon, so Ken, can you start by painting me a beautiful word picture of uh, what Dundracon is like? Okay, uh, to begin to really sort of bring out what Dundracon means to me, you have to remember that I live in Chicago, and Chicago is one of those places that you live in despite the weather, unlike, say, Los Angeles, where you live live in the weather despite Los Angeles. Right. In other words, Los Angeles is for weak people, yes. and Chicago and Toronto are for the strong. Exactly. But uh, along with our moral strength comes the sad absence of sunlight in Chicago quite often for you know five or six months at a time. And having been brought up on uh, the southern plains of North America, I find that I can't uh, hoard enough vitamin D in my blood cells or wherever it is one hoards vitamin D to remain entirely sane throughout an entire Chicago winter. So I adopted the habit of going out to Dundercon every February because it's held on President's Day weekend, in, uh, which is the third weekend in February usually. And it is held even more appropriately in the Bay Area, specifically in San Ramon, California, which is about as far east as you can go and still be calling yourself the Bay Area. But it is still uh, sunny and uh, usually at uh, Dundercon, there's one day of rain, but this day, this time there was no days of rain during Dundercon, so it was a magical Dundercon indeed. It's sunny, it's so warm. So you, you fly into San Francisco? Yeah, I fly into Oakland, actually, because I have uh, good friends in Oakland. Uh, Chris Hanrahan, uh, the beloved proprietor of uh, the Endgame Game Store, and I have developed the glorious tradition, which hopefully will soon become a uh, venerable tradition, of me coming out a day early, and we sneak up to Napa for wine tasting. And I think that that is a terrific thing. And also, since you're drinking the concentrated sunlight, I'm sure that it's good for my vitamin D. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that a, a salutary health measure, which Absolutely. I endorse. And of course, uh, the Bay Area is also the redoubt of the Chaosium and Chaosium Diaspora crowd. Yeah, I occasionally have in the past gone down to uh, Hayward or uh, Oakland or wherever it is, Chaosium has had their their uh, transient headquarters, their uh, their black fanes. Uh, this trip, I did not do so much because uh, Chaosium and I are not doing any projects together, so it would be basically wasting Charlie's time to come down and just insist that he show me around the warehouse and let me touch everything. Right, because there's nothing more exciting than a game company warehouse. Well, I, I find that every game company takes of itself its own magical personality, and you can you can sort of uh, uh, suss out 
what a game company might be like based on their offices and their warehouse, even though in theory they should all look the same. So, you know, the Steve Jackson games has always reminded me of a third-party political headquarters. <laughs> uh, and FASA, back when they were in, in existence, they looked like a, a hip, trendy architecture firm. Um, and uh, Wizards of the Coast, of course, looked like a, a defense company contractor. So it's it, every every office feels like it's its own different office, and Chaosium always felt like a um, uh, front for the Armenian mob. So that was that was great fun. So uh, Dundercon itself, how old a convention is this? Dundercon is the oldest continuous role playing game convention uh, in certainly on the West Coast, and one of the oldest in the world. It started up in 1976, and it is a fundamentally role playing convention. Gaming is the thing that happens there, despite a incredibly recondite system by which people sign up for games and then are randomly assigned to other games. And I'm not even certain how that works or why that works, but uh, they, they, um, uh, they tap the meter. They, they've been having 1,500 or more people at the convention pretty much since I've been coming there. I think they may have been around 1,000 when I first began coming out there you know, more than a decade ago. So does this Soviet-sounding system of assigning games to people actually work? I, I guess so. I mean, people keep coming back. People keep signing up to run games. They have whole hordes of games that are, that are run. I, I don't know if there's like uh, special ways to jump the line, in, as, as one has in a proper Soviet system, or if there are weightings based on what you actually picked. I have no idea how the system works, frankly. I don't think you're ever assigned to a game you didn't want to be in, but you have no guarantee that you'll get into a game you did want to be in. I, I think I'm quasi-following that. Yeah, but uh, but since I don't usually come out there to uh, run games, it's kind of uh, you know off my radar how the system actually works. I come out there to do seminars, which uh, Dundercon has uh, a robust seminar track, and they have they fill the seminar rooms, which at a role-playing game convention is not always the case. But they've managed to do it, they, they do it enough times, and they've been doing it since, you know, Dundercon 2, I think, that uh, they've established sort of the mental map of Dundercon attendees that the seminars are part of the convention in a way that other game conventions haven't really established. And so are you doing this on your own dime? I am flying out on my own dime because of the aforementioned health benefits. Uh, the uh, convention, because I'm now a... Um, uh, a venerable tradition, uh, put me up in the in the convention hotel on, on their nickel, and I get a free badge, obviously. So it's it's sort of a, a shared cost, but uh, as a warning to other conventions, if you're not in California in February, the odds of me doing that uh, are slim. Although a Florida convention in January is welcome to see what they can get out of me, I guess. Uh, so what did you panel on? on uh, every year I do a panel with Andrew Swenson and Mike Blum on uh, city building, and this time, <laughs> Michael had provided uh, convention organizer Steve Perrin. Yes, that's Steve Perrin, the guy who made RuneQuest happen, Steve Perrin. Um, they uh, provided him, <laughs> Mike provided him with four possible topics, and he put all of them into the program. So we sort of uh, did a more of an overview than we normally do. Last year we did, I think, London, and the year before that we did Rome, and Michael brought out, like, giant maps, and we sort of ran through the whole history of the city. And then as we do that, we riff on how that applies to a fantasy game or a science fiction game or whatever else. We did that basically with uh, with this city panel. I'm always on a panel called What's Cool, which is sort of a, uh, you know, uh, trying to highlight what's cool in uh, the last year since the last Undercon for people. Uh, uh, recently, IPR has been nice enough to put me on their What's New in Indie Role-Playing seminar, which has a <laughs> considerable overlap with What's Cool, but is not always the same thing. 
and I'm usually on at least one or two other panels. Depending this year, I was on an alternate history panel uh, with Dana Lombardi, the uh, war game designer, and uh, I've uh, done that panel with him a couple of few times, and it's great fun. And I was on a how to get started in the role playing game business panel, which devolved into a Kickstarter panel. So we're beginning to think that that might be the uh, industry side of the GM tips panel that everything else devolves into. Yes, I, th- I think that's that's absolutely the case, and now it will you know Kickstarter being the new lifeblood of uh, tabletop for however long it lasts is going to be the thing that every seminar is going to turn into in the middle. So let's uh, back up a bit there and uh, recall your city building panel. So this time you talked about a bunch of different cities. Is that what happened? It was a bunch of different general topics. We talked about uh, law enforcement and crime in a, in, in a city, you know, over the whole span of cities. Uh, we talked about public accommodations. So, you know, do cities have taverns? What do they have if they don't have taverns? Um, we talked about the, the nature of conveyances and, uh, and street design, things like that. And we also talked, uh, basically it was transit was the, was the general topic. And we did a thing on cities dead and, de- and decaying and what makes a city die or decay. Why does that happen? And so what does make a city die or decay? Usually either there is some degree of climate or geographical change that alters the reason you would put a city there in the first place, or uh, the city's enemies, uh, either you know passive or active, put up another city that outcompetes it in that evol- evolutionary niche. So uh, Troy stopped being the, the chokehold of the, um, uh, of, of the Dardanelles once someone put a better city on the Bosphorus, uh, Byzantium. And um, uh, Ctesiphon uh, basically drew Seleucia away to Ctesiphon once the Parthians put the, their, their capital, their empire, you know, just up the river in Seleucia. And then the, uh, the Arabs knocked down Ctesiphon to build Baghdad. So you have sort of both of those things working. And then there's other things that just happen to keep cities um, uh, down. Either you have a, a larger... Uh, demographic shift like you had in, in the Roman Empire, or you have some other sort of uh, generalized convulsion like you have in the Mayan Empire when uh, they went through uh, simultaneous uh, drought and civil wars that managed to sort of knock most of the classic Mayan cities out of uh, being able to sustain themselves politically and economically. Points to why a dying or losing city is an interesting setting for fiction or for gaming in that it is a changing city, first of all, and that uh, change creates sort of fissures in the social firmament uh, in which adventurers and other 'er ne'er-do-wells can insert themselves. Uh, It creates a sense of desperation on the part of the powers that be, either to uh, deal with collapsing resources in the case of a drought or to do something to uh, combat the next city down the line that's suddenly outcompeting it. And so that, again, gives you a lot of plot drivers because it's a changing situation rather than a, a static situation. And often the temptation is to sort of create a stable city in a fantasy environment, often because you're doing it for publication and you want everybody to sort of be playing in the same city. But if you're creating your own city, you should set that aside and look for, if not a a dying or losing city, some other big change that's occurring that will drive the characters into storylines. Yeah. And also, of course, a, a dying city has a symbolic weight to it because 
it, the the survivors are are basically in something of a post holocaust or post apocalyptic type setting even if they don't you know know it or believe it, it it sort of leeches into their into their culture and you've got of course a bunch of empty buildings to fill up with kobolds or or uh, ogre magi or whatever and lots and lots of dead people to turn into ghouls and zombies and so the the what's cool panel what did you single out as being cool well um you'll be gratified to know that we mentioned uh hill folk and the drama system in general both on the what's cool and the what's new in indie gaming panel i also uh, gave a shout out to beloved fellow podcaster ryan macklin's Mythender, which i think is both new and cool i mentioned uh knight's black agents uh, as uh, new and gratifyingly someone else uh, mentioned that it was cool or rather the other way around i mentioned that it was cool and uh, Carl Rigney mentioned that it was new. So uh, we had that. Um, I was actually taken by a game that I don't know. It's new, but it, but it was new to me, called Hoodoo Blues, which is by the guys at Vajra Enterprises who did Tibet, which was not a particularly inspired game system, but was really, really well-researched and really, really well-integrated into story. The whole uh, uh, mythology and uh, folklore and culture and history of Tibet so that you could play anything from... Uh, great, uh, powerful heroes uh, fighting off the wrathful Buddhas with Jazar of Ling and the Tibet's mythical history down to uh, llamas using uh, Chad and Bonpa to defeat uh, communist invaders in the 50s. So it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a book. And the same guys have a new book out called Hoodoo Blues, which is a role-playing game using, I think for the first time, or certainly for the first time in any great measure, um, Conjure Magic and Hoodoo as the fundamental uh, myth- mythological or fantasy aspect to their setting. And some of the, either the main NPCs or the main PCs, depending on what kind of game you play, are these sort of uh, eternals, these uh, immortals who have lived through all of the history of the American South and sort of seen all the horrors that you can see. And so it's, it's got a really great you know, historical uh, feel to it and uh, uses a really, really underexploited American magic tradition, which I'm, I'm very excited about. You were mentioning that last week in our discussion of Black Herman as something to maybe check out. So I'm glad to hear that you checked it out and that it uh, fulfilled your expectations. Indeed it did. And is there anything new in the world of uh, indie game design that is not Kickstarter? I think that a lot of the things that are new in indie game design are being Kickstartered. Like, for example, a beloved uh, friend of the podcast, James Wallace's Alas Vegas, which will either be just about done or has uh, finished... uh, moments ago as we uh, record this. Right, so, and we've both, I believe, been uh, roped into being stretch goals for that. Yes, um, I, I don't know if I'm going to be officially a stretch goal. I came up with my idea while I was in California, and uh, James is not exactly sure how it's going to work with the architecture of his Kickstarter, but he assures me that he will exploit me as early as he possibly can, and I'm happy to be part of that. Cool. And so uh, for anyone thinking of going to DunderCon in the future, have you left out any inducements or attractions that might draw one to DunderCon? Um, well, it's like I say, it's, it's a really uh, vibrant role-playing game scene. There's a good um, sort of pickup game element to it. it you, it's certainly a place to show up and find a fellow uh, role players who might be interested in running something, you know, after, the, after their session ends or, or at night. It's... Uh, you know, it, it, San Ramon is not a really uh, romantic part of the Bay Area, but the Bay Area itself is lovely. It is convenient to an In-N-Out, which if you don't live in the western United States, I encourage you to pilgrimage there for it being the greatest fast food hamburger in the world. And I think that the thing that I like about DunderCon 
is that it is so much of a continuity with the old uh, Dungeons & Dragons first or zeroth generation people. Like I mentioned, Steve Perrin, the guy who wrote the Perrin Conventions, is still running Dundercon. Um, he's got, uh, you know, there, there are people who are from that old school who are there, and then, you know, you see teenagers and kids running around playing D&D or playing Pathfinder or whatever it is they're playing. There's a organized Pathfinder play event that uh, they do. There's um, the SCA hits each other with boffer weapons out in the sunny courtyard, so you can lounge out there and drink a Mountain Dew and watch someone get smacked around with a foam axe. So that's pretty great. Um, and the uh, the convention also has, as I mentioned, Dana Lombardi runs a little bit of his War College, so if you liked that at Origins or haven't been able to get to Origins, you can go, go out there to see that. And they have a flea market, which is another nice thing that some West Coast conventions do that I haven't seen a lot of other conventions do, where the individual attendees rent a dealer's table for a, for an hour or for two hours for a nominal sum, and basically they sort of garage sale their, their game collection. So you can find a lot of old games for relatively little money. I picked up the Victory Games classic Gulf Strike there for 10 bucks, as well as a nice number of other, uh, you know, paperbacks and things like that. So it was pretty great. Uh, well, uh, I think you've excited everybody's envy and excitement around uh, Dundracon, so it's time to end this episode's Travel Advisory. Right. Although the smell of spices and the warm waft of steam tells us it's the food hut, there seems to be an awful lot of machine gun fire coming out of it, so <laughs> perhaps we should go and investigate what has happened to the food hut recently. Robin? Yes, we've got a, a food hut crime story in the news. Uh, uh, people have been following, I think, the uh, horse meat scandal that has struck the UK in which horse meat, uh, which turns out to be sourced from Romania, has ended up in processing plants in France and then from there into processed foods in uh, the UK and perhaps elsewhere labeled as 100% beef when it's 100% horse. And although this is not a health hazard per se, uh, many cultures, including the British, prefer not to uh, eat their lovable horsey friends, as tasty as they might be, uh, but instead to prefer to eat their lovable cow and pig friends and are disturbed to find uh, one listed as the other. And then once you get a possible criminal element uh, in the mix, and you would have to sort of assume up front that there's some sort of criminality going on, that a bunch of <laughs> horse doesn't end up in the plant by accident. Uh, but it turns out that investigative reports have noticed a an eerie similarity, shall we say, uh, in the money trail of shell corporations that got the Romanian meat into the French plant. Uh, these seem to be many of the same uh, not only banking institutions, but shell corporations uh, favored by the Russian arms dealer Victor Boot, or Bout, I'm not sure which. Uh, this time we'll get to have our pronunciation corrected by our Russian pals. Um, and uh, so this creates sort of an interesting intersection between uh, one variety of very high crimes, the illicit uh, sale of arms, in this case, to uh, rebels in Colombia. That's what uh, Victor Bout was finally arrested in Thailand and tried in the United States for and is now in prison. Uh, but it turns out that uh, either he or somebody else is still using his money trail uh, to move other black market products, in this case, incorrectly labeled meat, which raises the whole question of 
food counterfeiting uh, today and in history and how you might work it into your uh, games and your fiction. Um, yeah, I, I think that the first thing to note is that uh, any network that is good for smuggling anything is good for smuggling anything else, especially since the invention of the containerized uh, trade uh, system in the 1950s when you suddenly developed these, you know, everyone who's seen, you know, anything, any action movie, basically for the last 20 years has seen a, a shipping container, the big metal boxes. Then uh, those, in theory, they come from the factory. They're put on usually a train, shipped across the, the country, loaded from the train yard to the ship, and then put on the ship and then sailed to another port where they're put back on another train and only broken down at some assembly point far, far away from the original source. But the point being that the container itself may theoretically never be inspected or may only be inspected once by one guy that you bribe. And then as long as his sticker is on the outside, no one bothers to go back and double check, which in addition to having terrifying national security uh, repercussions, causes uh, a real sort of network of convenience to, to, to spring up. So, for example, if the CIA is interested in how one might smuggle guns into Nicaragua or out of Nicaragua to help um, uh, uh, communist uh, rebels, they would also be interested in how you would smuggle drugs in and out of C Central America, since it's usually the same people and certainly the same routes doing the smuggling. And the same thing happens when the Russian mob is trying to move money around in Cyprus and the Ukraine, uh, and uh, when it's trying to move guns around uh, to various uh, rebel movements, and as it turns out, when it's trying to move illicit horse meat around. So once you've found one smuggling network, you can turn it into an anything smuggling network, whether that be uh, uh, evil jade idols or uh, vampires or anything else you can imagine. And obviously that's a, a core part of any sort of modern-day uh, spy or occult adventure-type game, uh, such as, say, Knights Black Agents. Right, and uh, in Knights Black Agents or in, say, the Esoterrorist, which is also has a sort of a national security quality to it, although it doesn't do the spy thriller, it's more investigative, you could have a situation where, you know, you're literally shipping ghouls uh, from one location to another, or uh, you could also, of course, take the idea of tainted meat and apply all sorts of horror implications to it, uh, instead of uh, working old horses into the food supply, uh, a sinister force could be working uh, genetic material into the food supply in order to uh, create a plague or a, a wave of mutations, and so that would get the investigators uh, perhaps tracking down the uh, the money trail before they go down into the dark basement. Uh, before this story, I was not aware of Cyprus as a notorious haven for uh, offshore finance and uh, shady uh, money-hiding schemes. Yeah, Cyprus, um, because it is basically um, sort of uh, protected by the EU, since the northern third of it is occupied by the Turks and is uh, supposedly the Turkish Republic of Cyprus, uh, it winds up that the southern part of Cyprus, sort of in the same way that East Berlin, or rather West Berlin, was more of an open area of, of German society, the, the, the Greeks, and by extension the other EU members, don't look too closely at what's going on in Greek uh, two-thirds of Cyprus, because the last thing they want is to force another showdown over that island, because obviously whenever that, that happens, there's a risk of war between Greece and Turkey, and no one wants that. So Cyprus sort of winds up outside the, um, uh, the, 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 the ambit of any sort of civilized policing or oversight, and the Greeks, obviously, for uh, political reasons, as well as the standard you know 
anyone who's corrupt will let something in type reasons. Because, you know, mainland Greeks certainly never want to hide money anywhere. No, that, that would be ridiculous. I, I, I'm sure you're thinking of the Albanians there. But the, um, uh, but the, but the existence of Cyprus is basically, it's one of those sort of incredibly convenient places to plant capital, uh, if you are a, uh, Russian or Greek, uh, mobster. And those, uh, obviously the, the Greek shipping ty- tycoon is no longer quite the thing of legend that it once was. But again, these Greek shipping tycoons did not only ship olive oil and, um, uh, uh, white sand from the beaches of Mykonos. They were shipping all manner of stuff back and forth. And the idea of Cyprus being a sort of shady zone because of the uh, political uh, history and its sort of artificially divided nature sort of allows us to plug in a link to the last segment where uh, just as a dead or dying city creates a lot of different opportunities for story and adventure, so does an artificially maintained divided city, whether it is a your fantastic version of Cyprus or your fantastic version of Cold War Berlin or, in fact, you know, real uh, Cold War Berlin or present-day Cyprus. And that, uh, if especially if you're doing something where the characters enter a world of, of criminality or a where, world where otherwise closed borders suddenly become porous, it becomes an interesting exercise to design your own city based on one of these sort of artificially maintained fragmentations. Yeah, the, um, the, there's all manner of, of, of possibilities. I mean, Cyprus obviously has a history as long almost as human history itself, and there is at least one school of thought, which I uh, am happy to encourage, that holds that Cyprus was the actual Atlantis, that um, uh, when uh, 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 Solon learned what direction Atlantis was, he got it backwards, and instead of being to the west, it was to the east, and uh, Cyprus certainly has a big round harbor and uh, worshipped all manner of recondite gods way back in their past, and there seems to have been some degree of earthquakes or geological subsidence around there. So you can certainly tie uh, Cyprus, and by extension, pretty much anywhere that has that sort of, 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 uh, of feel to it back as far as you want to go mythically. And there's there's a great deal of possibility in that. And that gives you like a mage or Nephilim style game where what is being shipped around the world in these smuggled uh, shipping containers are all of the components and altars needed to bring back Atlantis and usher in uh, the return of an antediluvian age. Right. Or, or you can be shipping mermaids <laughs> mislabeled as tilapia. Right. Well, speaking of mislabeled tilapia, the end of mislabeled foods actually we are much more likely to encounter food fraud when we go to a sushi restaurant than in this uh, sort of famous horse meat case that has hit headlines everywhere. But in fact, it's everyday practice in uh, the sale of fish that unlike, you know, horses and cows and pigs, where there are just a few distinct species that we eat, there's a ton of different species of fish that we eat. And often we're being sold one species of fish while, uh, in fact, uh, we ordered another. And so uh, often in a sushi restaurant, for example, your red snapper will be tilapia. And I find that out to my chagrin because tilapia violently disagrees with me. <laughs> so uh, that's I've learned never to order uh, white-fleshed uh, fish in a sushi restaurant because of that. Uh, sometimes, Often the salmon that you think you're eating is, in fact, a farmed uh, trout. And uh, there's also the issue, if you are interested only in eating sustainable seafood, that uh, very often 
your fish that you are eating that you've carefully selected from your app on your iPhone as being sustainable is not that fish, but is uh, some other fish that is being overfished. Right. And that obviously once people are overfishing it, then they are the kinds of people who will be selling it illegally under another name because you can't very well walk out and say, here we are with the um, uh, North Atlantic cod that I'm not supposed to be fishing at all. So instead you have to pretend that it's haddock or, or, or um, uh, some other kind of of white uh, firm fish, and it winds up in your um, uh, in, in in making some kind of mistake. I read somewhere that uh, I forget what they were. They were biologists. They were some sort of uh, life science guys. Went around and actually genetically tested the fish at a whole raft of sushi bars in New York City, and that something like two thirds of the fish weren't what they were labeled. It's not like you get a one in ten chance of of missing out on, on the fish you want that you're, it's actually better than even chance that you're not eating what you think you're eating. Yes, the, the menu really should say orange fish, white <laughs> fish, or red fish. And, right. and that's about as, as close as you're going to get. And uh, they did that in Toronto as well. It wasn't quite that off the scale wrong, but it was still, uh, you know, you are more likely than not at most sushi places. And I guess uh, one would hope that the sort of bottom scale sushi places are doing it more than the top-of-the-scale sushi places. Toronto actually has a lot of really great cheap sushi, but it's not necessarily, uh, you know, if if you knew sushi like I knew sushi. Um, mm -hmm. My favorite story of food uh, counterfeiting, however, uh, is documented in a book called The Billionaire's Vinegar ah, uh, by yeah. Benjamin Wallace. Uh, you know this as well, and this is the story of uh, high-end antique wine sales to uh, various uh, moguls and uh, super rich people who uh, suddenly acquired a vogue for antique wines, including uh, supposedly wines from the cellar of Thomas Jefferson, famous uh, enophile himself. And, uh, of course, when uh, suddenly all of these super rare antique wines suddenly become available consistently on the market from one or two sellers, and there's a whole craze for them among the ultra-wealthy, someone might stop and consider whether these are, in fact, the real thing. And so that's a brilliant, very entertainingly written account of how it was fine, how the obvious thing that nobody wanted to admit was finally proven. And uh, some of your favorite rich people uh, that you uh, love not to admire, uh, you get to read about them being uh, uh, hoodwinked uh, in spectacular fashion. By wine forgers, yes. and uh, and also on a on a lower level, wine forgery happens all kinds of different places and different times. You know, you you think you're getting the the, the you know the O five, uh, and you're actually getting the O seven, or you you think you're getting um, Chateau Yakem, and you're actually getting Chateau really close to Yakem, um, or next door to Yakem, or someplace in Chile that has a similar terroir, but the wine is you know an order of magnitude less expensive. And that is another ongoing sort of uh, thing that no one really wants to start investigating, like they didn't want to investigate uh, when someone noticed that there were more Rembrandts ha hanging on the walls of various art museums around the world than Rembrandt could physically have painted in his entire life. Uh, yeah, that's a really interesting forgery story because scholars swooped in and sort of rendered a whole bunch of uh, Rembrandts questionable, and now there's another wave of scholarship that's saying, hey, wait a minute, we're a little overzealous, and uh, some of these are not uh, complete fakes. Some of them are the real thing, and a lot more of them are from the studio of Rembrandt. So uh, they are, uh, you know, still authentic paintings, just uh, 
optimistically attributed in a lot of cases. Right. Yeah. And, th- and that was the, more the big thing uh, that you were getting with the Rembrandts is that people do school of Rembrandt stuff as uh, it would be a possible Rembrandt. And then, you know, two curators later, it would be Rembrandt. And then no one, no one would go back and check. Yes. And there are other painters that are, are, you know, a degree less famous who've been even more thoroughly uh, forged. I think it's Corot of whom they said that there are, you know, that he made uh, 3,000 paintings in his lifetime and there are uh, 15,000 of them in U.S. museums. There's a terrific, um, uh, there's a terrific novel um, by Lawrence Block called The Burglar Who Painted Like Mondrian, talking about forging Mondrians. And since he's forging De Steele era Mondrians when it's all 90 degree angles and primary colors. It's not the hardest job of forgery in the world. <laughs> what do you need to forge Manjian? A ruler and some chutzpah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think having surreptitiously crept from the food hut into the art hut, uh, I think it's time to uh, close up both huts and move on to another one. Once again, to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Andrew Brehote asks Ken and Robin. On an RPG Net Q&A, Ken made a comment. Structure is an underappreciated design tool. Could you please expand on this? So, Ken, what the heck did you mean by that? What I meant was that when you are faced with trying to create something de novo, uh, you generally don't have anywhere to push against. You don't have anywhere to go with it. And you're liable, in many cases, just to sort of start vomiting stuff out and it all seems good because it all came out at the same time. Whereas if you are told you need to have a, um, uh, a world in which you can have gunpowder and alchemy, then all of a sudden those are two focuses to, uh, put your, uh, your, 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 your game concept, your setting concept around. If, or conversely, you say this mechanic has to work with our core, you know, three die six mechanic, or you have to be able to use a pre-existing gumshoe mechanic to create this sort of narrative feel, that those drive, I think, certainly more elegant design because you're not reinventing the wheel every time. And I think also it creates a really, uh, I think it creates a, a stronger design because you've been forced to think about a second dimension besides what do I feel like designing today? And just the level of, of work involved in uh, adhering to that structure, I think makes you, you know, takes you to another level. It, the, the classic example is, you know, sonnets have 14 lines and a rhyme scheme for a reason, because you are building your emotion, the raw emotion of the poet, into that structure so that you can express it as purely and as well as you possibly can. It's why, you know, things have a meter and a, and a, and a rhyme scheme and things like that, is that anyone can just sort of put words down about, you know, a, a, a cloudy sky or their you know, girlfriend leaving them, but if it has to rhyme and it has to hit certain beats then the argument is that you will sort of try harder and think more about each individual word. And while that may or may not be true in modern poetry, I think it's still fairly true in game design, that if you're looking to match a structure, match some sort of pre-existing baseline, that you're more likely to think about how it is, uh, what the material is that you're doing, how that 
meets that baseline as opposed to um, just sort of, well, you know, everyone likes dinosaurs. I'm done. Right. And I think what you, this is another way of saying the classic thing that lots of people always say, which is that creativity springs not from uh, possibility, but from constraint. That by setting out a couple of ground rules to begin with, that you've got something to go on. You don't just have a blank page. And even people who write free verse, their challenge actually is not just to operate without boundaries, but to create a new set of boundaries rather than taking an off-the-rack set of boundaries that you would get in a sonnet or a haiku. And that the uh, interesting works in that vein, and not that I am an expert in poetry by any means, are the ones that uh, create their own constraints and then operate from them. That it's not just somebody, you know, dashing a bunch of thoughts willy-nilly down, down and then imposing some arbitrary line breaks in them. And that when you are uh, designing something uh, to be played as a role-playing game, as you suggest, the very first thing you do is to create your parameters, your ground rules, your the rules from which your rules spring. And so uh, this gets back to the thing that I always say, which is that you need to have a tight understanding from the beginning what your design goals are, what you intend the game to do, and uh, then as you design, you check back with each little uh, subset of the rules to ask yourself, does this rule arise from the structure that I originally agreed with myself that I would impose, or is this something that relates to some other structure or expectation that is outside the unwritten rules that I set for myself? And you can also apply that, I think, to um, not even just game design, but in terms of individual scenario design or individual campaign design. Obviously, we all love the sandbox, but a lot of times you spend a lot of time digging in random corners of the sandbox before you find the plastic dinosaur. And I think that it's just, it can be just as valuable to create a structure um, like a lot of narrativist uh, games do, that there's going to be a beginning and a rising action and a climax and then a denouement, uh, that the, either the game mechanics or just the sheer narrative force of the GM is going to drive things that way. And I think that when you are thinking about how do I play out a heist movie, how do I play out a, a thriller, how do I play out an episode of Star Trek, then you're asking yourself questions that, again, I think sort of tend to inform... Uh, and tighten up your own gameplay and your own game design as opposed to, well, I've put so much awesome, so many awesome dinosaurs into the sandbox, it's only going to be a matter of time before they dig one up. Right, and, and that comes to, I guess, a broader question that's maybe beyond the scope of this segment, but we can maybe scratch the surface a bit, which is that the word structure, I think, arouses in the fear of many gamers who are hyper-vigilant to anything that might be railroading, that they are having their freedom taken away from them by being asked to operate within a structure. But as you suggest, a structureless play can be uh, unsatisfying even to people who think they want a sandbox. And that really, particularly if early on you had a an authentically railroady experience where you were just along for the ride in a narrative that your GM was going to lay out for you no matter what, um, that you then become uh, gun-shy of a lot of actual useful structure that you will have fun with. And so perhaps a way to overcome that is when you sit down at the table together and embark on something where the players are meant to have a lot of freedom and input is to have a brief discussion about what the structure of the game is going to be, what the starting points for creativity within your game session are going to be, so that everybody is working to 
uh, agree upon and then reify the structure through play rather than having the structure be something that they feel just sort of imposes on them and takes away their control of the experience because, uh, you know, it's a big conceptual challenge to get people over the idea that they can have some structure in their games without flashing back to that time when the guy had the epic fantasy adventure for which they were really only bystanders with vorpal swords. Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly, um, <laughs> like like any art form, the, the number of ways to do it wrong is uh, far from exclusive, and certainly bad overstructured or, ro- or railroaded play can be just as bad as over um, uh, uh, or understructured, aimless, nothing happened at all that session, and you finally you just fought kobolds out of sheer frustration gameplay. So there's all manner of ways a game can go wrong and i think one of the sort of the benefits of of building a game to a structure that's gone right before and why for example the dungeon crawl is such a a classic and and well-beloved thing or the you know your uncle died and left you this haunted house in call of cthulhu similarly is because that's a proven structure people know how that works and they know what to expect out of it and you can you know, concentrate on making it a really exciting dungeon or a really scary haunted house instead of having to once more, you know, leave um, uh, pointers around the landscape saying dungeon here or, you know, um, uh, have your characters draw up their entire family tree so that you have, uh, you know, a hope that they hit an uncle that can, can die and leave them a haunted house. Right. And I think that if you think about what the structures are that you're going to bring into play in whatever campaign you're embarking on, that can sort of protect you from a syndrome that I think a lot of people suffer from in that they, based on their prior experiences and often their prior bad experiences, they create for themselves a structure of no-go areas, a list of things that they are interested in playing and a a list of things that they don't want to even go near again. And the thing is, is that there is some uh, baby in in amongst that bathwater. And that if you... uh, relax your hypervigilance a little and uh, be more consciously aware of what it is that you're working toward, you can maybe, you know, not miss out on some things that would be fun that you would otherwise be avoiding because they uh, invoke the, the, you know, one of your no-no words, whether that's illusionism or railroading or uh, any number of sort of manifesto words that uh, we have devised in order to uh, tape crime scene tape over styles of play that we want to avoid. And of course, since so much of your gaming experience depends on your individual GM, it almost uh, seems like um, looking for your keys under the light stand because under the lamppost because the light's better there. The, the GM is really the person who's going to screw up or or, or rescue uh, the, the game material, assuming you're playing a game with a GM, obviously. And so, you know, a bad GM is going to screw up the best structured or the best sandboxed uh, experience and a good GM is going to liberate. You know, for example, you look at uh, a classic uh, Call of Cthulhu uh, Globetrotter, where you are following clues from point A to point B to point C to point D. And you know, obviously, in horror of the, on the Orient Express, it is a literal railroad that you're on. But a great GM can take that experience and make it feel like the actual um, uh, puzzle-solving, mystery-chasing uh, experience of Thurston in Call of Cthulhu or the protagonists in Durlat's Trail of Cthulhu. And a bad GM is just going to make it seem like, you know, yet another tour in Elminster's footsteps in the Forgotten Realms. Right. And it's not like there's a chasm separating the good from the bad GM. We all have, uh, 
good nights and bad nights. And if you are Certainly. worried that you are going to, you know, not satisfy your players, uh, the way to move from being a weaker GM to a stronger GM, among many other things, is to think about structure and to think about what the assumptions of your game are going to be, what the unspoken assumptions are, and uh, try and make them spoken. Uh, now, sometimes I will run a, a game for my poor, unfortunate uh, players without giving them a lot of stuff to go by, just to, uh, in laboratory experiment style, see what they do with it and see what problems I will then have to uh, build fixes for in the finished product. But for normal human GMs, I think being aware of what your springboards are and making your players aware of them uh, will go a long way from uh, moving you from the uh, worried GM side of the chasm to the strong GM side of the chasm. And of course, if the problem is that you're overstructured, that structure is still helping you see where your possibilities lie. Because rebelling against a structure is still a structured act. Right. If you sit down to talk to your players about what the ground rules are, and it's more than, you know, three sentences, uh, you're maybe imposing too much. Uh, well, I think we have uh, well-limbed this particular structure, and it's now time to uh, move into another structure. And that aforementioned structure is Fields Bookstore, which... Uh, leads us to a particularly elegiac entry in our Ken's Bookshelf segment. And Ken, perhaps you can give us a little bit of background and history on uh, Fields Bookstore and share the sadness of its current condition. Uh, well, Fields Bookstore is, uh, <laughs> pound for pound, as I say, the finest bookstore, or the finest occult bookstore in the English-speaking world. Um, it is currently located uh, in, in Polk Street in... San Francisco. It is going to close at the end of February. Its, its physical location will be gone. Um, and that is not because of the, of the rent, which I am assuming in Polk Street is uh, not inconsiderable, but they've been there, uh, like, like I say, since, uh, you know, it's for 80 odd years. Uh, and so they've, they either own the spot or they have a, a really sweet lease. Um, they, they picked the, 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 the store's been there since 1932. So, but it's just, you know, the, 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 the changing, uh, rules of the bookstore game are just driving a lot of, uh, stores to the wall, um, competing against people who come in with their, uh, phone and run through your, uh, inventory and then walk out and buy the same thing on Amazon for 30% off. That can't be easy. Um, obviously people also get, you know, old after, you know, spending years and years and years doing the same thing. They want to retire. They want to move on. Fields will still be selling stuff off their website, fieldsbooks.com. But for me, um, going into Fields was, it, 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 it really, as a, as a bibliophile and as an elliptonist, it, it's a pilgrimage site for me. I go to Fields and I see reliably books that I've spent, you know, the last year learning the existence of, just sitting there on, on a shelf for sale near four other books that I didn't know existed until I saw them that moment. And, Certainly, the first uh, you know few years of, of my visits to Field, it was it, it was always something new, always something uh, exploding off the shelf. Only after literally going there for more than a decade did I begin to become so familiar with Fields that I had actually 
sort of understood their inventory and understood some of what they, they did to, to, to buy the books and to, and to put the books together. It's just a tremendous example of the bookseller's art. A, a beautiful, dedicated store, hugely deep uh, in, in terms of its selection, which is amazing given that it just isn't a very big store. But somehow the, the Fieldsians were able to assemble really terrific collections in a lot of very disparate uh, fields of, of the occult or the New Age or the Eleptonic. Uh, it's just a, a miraculous bookstore, and its physical passing is going to be a hard blow for me when I go back to California next February and I have to go to, I don't know, Moe's in Berkeley or some third-rate place, City Lights maybe. I don't know. It won't be the same. So will you, uh, I suppose you won't uh, have this, these great cathartic splurges of book buying, but you may you know, have to occasionally pick up a tome through the mail, but it just doesn't have the same feeling as, as walking through the door and seeing what jumps out at you as opposed to what you already know you want. Yeah, and again, I, I don't know how much of this is just because I'm old, and maybe the kids today don't have that sensation because the, the, um, uh, the digital world is so present for them. But for me, there's never anything like walking into a bookstore, uh, especially a bookstore that combines new and used books the way that Fields does, and literally never knowing what's going to f what I'm going to find except that it's going to be something that I desperately need to own. That, that, that combination of magic and serendipity just doesn't exist outside the physical bookstore. And, it, and a bookstore like Fields that is really, like I say, top of the line in its, in its, in its uh, area, it, it's just a, an experience that you can't get even by going to the Fields website, much less by going to Amazon and looking for, you know, bestsellers in New Age because those are all going to be terrible, and you, you don't want those books. Uh, so you did come away with a final haul from Field, and I have a list of titles here. So I thought in Ken's bookshelf fashion that we would run through some of them and see what tangents they inspire. So one of the titles you picked up is The Last Stand of Chinese Conservatism, The Tang Chi Restoration, 1862 to 1874, by Mary Clabow Wright. How did that leap into your hands? Well, a lot of this is, um, like I say, Fields has a used section as well as a new section. And their used section is not as tightly policed in the sense that they will buy books and put them out used if the books look interesting as opposed to if the books are specifically magical. So, as I say, if you are a really good used bookstore, you have the kinds of books that Fields only has in its used book section. And one of those books, uh, in this case, was this Last Stand of Chinese Conservatism, which is about the Tongji Emperor who uh, was the emperor who got to reign right after the Opium Wars, right after his, his summer palace got burned down. And it, his response was, of course, to try and rebuild the stable state structure of China as opposed to develop a, a new structure, a la the, the Meiji Emperor uh, over in Japan, that would be more, uh, more westernized and more able to defeat the West on its, on its own terms. And so, uh, basically, it's just Chinese history is, is fascinating stuff. And this book is, you know, it's, it's very thick and very, uh, well, uh, you know, scholarly. And it, and as I may have mentioned, the used books at Fields were 50% off, which means that they were, <laughs> a lot of the, the, the books are already sort of on the bubble of, can I afford it? Do I really want it for uh, $10? But if you ask that same question, do I really want it for $5? The answer is, oh, hells yes. And that's, an example of, of the last stand of Chinese conservatism. Uh, so, so you told Sheila that you were saving money with every book you bought. Exactly. Uh, when Sheila um, uh, was send me off to California this time, she was saying, "Now, don't don't just uh, go nuts at Fields again." 
And I said, oh, sweetie, didn't, didn't I tell you Fields is having a going out of business uh, sale and uh, all the used books are 50% off? And she says, I'm just wasting my breath talking to you then. <laughs> well, there was an epiphany had then, wasn't there? It, it's, I don't know if it's so much an epiphany as a sad realization, but yeah, yes. it's certainly... Possibly an, an anagnorisis. An anagnorisis, yes. Um, you also picked up Elements of Japanese Design by John Dower. By John Dower. John Dower is a... A Japanese scholar. He wrote a very controversial history of the Pacific War, uh, seen as a race war, which uh, was certainly uh, interesting to read. Although I, you know, give leave to doubt his conclusions in many respects. But this is just an exploration of Japanese design and its Japanese heraldry uh, specifically. So there's like 1,100 different mons uh, drawn in here by a Japanese artist, and it sort of just lays out what are the principles. Why? Does a, does a Japanese mon look the way that it does? What are the fundamental qualities of that? And I've got a lot of books uh, in the basement on symbolism and heraldry and vexillology and, and kindred topics. And this is an area of uh, sim symbolic language that I don't really understand a lot. But obviously, uh, Japan has got a huge uh, uh, mind share uh, or footprint in uh, the geekosphere. And I think that it's the kind of thing that it's it's worth knowing about, and it's just a very pretty book. I mean, the 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 you know classic uh, black and white minimalist design, good font, uh, and just a very nice looking book. If there's a country one associates with design, it's certainly Japan. Yeah, J Japan or Italy. Um, next on the list is News from Tartary by Peter Fleming. Yeah, Peter Fleming was Ian Fleming's older brother, and he was a uh, glamorous travel writer, and he would go do glamorous travels and then write them up. And this is his glamorous travel from Beijing to Kashmir. And he walked basically across northern China into Turkestan and then down through Turkestan into uh, Kashmir. And this is his narrative of that journey. It happened in 1936. And therefore, in addition to being a cracking piece of travel writing, it's also very, very valuable for uh, Deathless China, which will be my next big Trail of Cthulhu project for Pelgrane. Uh, and then we have The Jewel House, Elizabethan London and the Scientific Revolution Yeah, by Deborah Harkness. By Deborah Harkness. The uh, Jewel House is uh, another one of my Elizabethan uh, acquisitions. Elizabethan England is another one of my sort of uh, fascinations, as perhaps everyone knows by now. And this, uh, uh, rather than presume that the Scientific Revolution sprang full-blown out of Francis Bacon's uh, brain, it argues that there must have been a culture of experimentation, a culture of knowledge sharing, a culture of uh, openness to explore things from which Francis Bacon developed. And indeed, Deborah Harkness has taken a few case studies of people, um, uh, you know, botanists who would trade weird plants back and forth, and uh, alchemists, and all manner of people who were engaged in one degree or another of sort of scientific or parascientific or pre-scientific exploration and study of the world. And of course, every single one of them can easily become a crazy magician with, you know, just the tiniest of, of shoves, as seems to be true of pretty much everyone in Elizabethan London. But uh, I, I picked it up uh, primarily because of the Elizabethan London connection and only incidentally because of the scientific revolution connection. So it's not entirely true that Francis Bacon secretly wrote science. Right. It, it is not entirely true. And as everyone knows, it was William Shakespeare that secretly developed the scientific revolution. Uh, From the Holy Mountain, A Journey Among the Christians of the Middle East is by William Dalrymple. Yeah, this is a, another travel narrative. Uh, he's recreating a voyage that uh, John of Moscos took in 587. And John left Byzantium and he wandered all over 
uh, the Christian East uh, as it was at that time and went to all the monasteries and all the top-notch locations for pilgrimage. And this guy is recreating that journey, of course, in a Middle East that has basically seen uh, not just the Muslim conquest, but also a uh, the Crusades and uh, the, the Ottoman Turks and the Mamluks and the Mongols and all kinds of other people rising up and slaughtering each other. And thus the Christian remnant is uh, somewhat, as we talked about in terms of the uh, decaying cities, more of a monument to the past than it is a uh, a full a full cultural participant in those areas. And uh, for me, it's interesting, first of all, just as sort of a travel narrative that uh, calls back to the Byzantine era, which is interesting by itself. But also, of course, the Eastern Christians, a lot of them turned out to be Gnostics or Nestorians or another kind of heretic, which drives any number of uh, possible uh, occultism-based uh, games and storylines, as well as just being, you know, historically interesting. The Chaldean Christians who, um, you know, sort of... Uh, tootled along in Mesopotamia, and because they could just pay a tax and be ignored by the Ottomans, they did that. And then Saddam Hussein, of course, was willing to basically team up with anyone who was neither a Kurd nor a Shiite, and so they were relatively well-treated under uh, Saddam. Um, Tariq Aziz, his foreign minister, was a Chaldean Christian, for example. And then, of course, with the fall of Saddam and the rise of uh, the, the majority finally getting to run their own country, there has been a, a unpleasant uh, rise in sectarian violence against Christians in Iraq. And the same story happens pretty much wherever you uh, see these kinds of uh, religious uh, popular movements. You're seeing the same thing going on with the Copts in Egypt, for example. It is so it's a, seldom a good thing to be a minority when the majority finally gets its chance to rule. Yes, certainly certainly, if, if they haven't been allowed to do anything for themselves for a thousand years, you probably don't want to be the guy sitting nearby with the, with the church they don't believe in. Yes, you do not want to be the guy soaked in gasoline when they're playing with matches. Uh, right. Unusually for a, a, a Ken's bookshelf, if not for Ken, uh, there's a work of fiction, Mr. George and Other Odd Persons by Stephen Grendon. Yes, Stephen Grendon is actually August Derleth under one of his pseudonyms. He, like Robert Heinlein and a lot of other pulp writers, uh, submitted so many stories that you, he couldn't submit them all under his name because people would uh, refuse to uh, publish an all uh, an Alderleth issue of Weird Tales or an all Heinlein issue of Astounding. Yes. As much as John Campbell, for example, was happy to do it, he just made him change his name. Uh, Derleth Tales magazine was uh, short-lived. Right, yes. But, you know, it, 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 it read well. And, th and this is a collection of the stories that, that uh, Derleth wrote as Stephen Grendon. And they're just sort of, you know, spooky ghost stories. And when uh, Derleth is not trying to be H.P. Lovecraft, he's a considerably better writer. And it's an Arkham House hardback, which is just by itself worth owning, I think. So to what extent did he assign separate voices and themes to his various pseudonyms? I, I don't know uh, his output well enough to know necessarily if he changed voice when he was being Stephen Grendon. Uh, I know that he made Stephen Grendon a character in uh, later stories by him, which is kind of delightfully weird. Um, much like, I'm sure, um, uh, Stephen King has put Richard Botchman into something. Um, but I, I, I don't know that there's a, a big voice difference, and I think partly because he wrote the Grendon stories so fast that if the, any difference in voice would be subsumed in the speed with which he wrote them. Voice? There's no time to put a voice in this. <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> my voice is this. My voice is very fast. Yes. It is breathless voice. We move now into the realm of the electonic with a series of uh, biographies. The first one is The Dream King, Ludwig II of Bavaria by Wilfred Blunt. And I think that people might argue that there's nothing particularly elliptonic about Ludwig of Bavaria, merely because he's a madman obsessed with swans who built Wagner's Bayreuth, uh, the, the, the greatest single uh, neo-pagan ritual center in Europe. But I would say perhaps they would be not looking at the whole picture. As, as the definer and refiner of what is elliptonic, I think you get to decide, and you just did. Yes, and um, uh, certainly his, his life is, is not without tragedy, but it is also um, uh, very brightly colored and delightful-looking tragedy. And therefore, I think uh, prime elliptonic territory, uh, he is most famous to gamers for being an inspirational figure for Castle Falkenstein by uh, uh, Mike Pondsmith, and... Uh, his castle of Falkenstein indeed became sort of a epic uh, symbol of that game. Another castle that he built, uh, Neuschwanstein, is uh, Sleeping Beauty's castle, I believe, in Disney World and so or Disneyland. So therefore, he uh, is in charge of having formed the dreams of an awful lot of people, uh, one way or the other. And he's just nuts, as I should mention. Uh, he he literally went crazy while he was king, and it's that last era when. Whether or not your king is insane actually affects the way that the country is run. So he's interesting on on that level as well. Next up, we have Ermengarde of Narbonne and the World of the Troubadours by Frederick Chayat. Yes, the Troubadours are the sort of cultural expression of the Occitanian or Southern. Uh, uh, calling it Southern, calling it Southern France is in fact uh, begging the question. Uh, Ermengarde of um, uh, of Narbonne is one of the uh, sort of, uh, what do I want to say, uh, central figures, I guess, in the politics of Occitania. Um, she was the Viscountess of Narbonne in the 12th century, so sort of at the center of this revival of European culture, which I should point out is happening all over. This is the same period of time, basically, that they're writing the uh, Arthurian romances up in the Low Countries, in Troyes and in the Champagne country and then exporting them back to uh, to England. It's about the same time that uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth is doing King Arthur. So the troubadours are creating this Occitanian culture, which Occitan is a, is a Romance language, like uh, French is. It is a, um, uh, uh, it's a culture perhaps uh, more similar to what we think of now as Italian culture, certainly Renaissance Italian culture with lots of um, uh, love and knife fights. And it also, of course is famously hospitable to the Cathars and their, uh, and their Templar buddies. And so therefore, uh, when Ermengarde is building a whole culture that basically is extirpated by the Albigensian Crusade, you have all manner of possible uh, connections out into the, um, uh, out in the, the realm of the, certainly the occult in the sense of hidden or forgotten, and as well, the, uh, the, 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 the more narrow uh, occult, because, as I mentioned, it's full of Cathars. And from a powerful medieval woman to a powerful 19th century American, we go to Anne the Word, the story of Anne Lee, female Messiah, mother of the Shakers, the woman clothed with the sun, by Richard Francis. Yes. Mother Anne Lee is basically um, uh, one of the sort of... Um, many millennial uh, millennialist leaders who has popped up in America. She founded the Shakers. She was um, uh, seen basically as uh, the, as sort of the uh, 
the embodiment of the of the woman clothed with the sun, the the, the aspect of divine grace that appears, a uh, feminine aspect of divine grace that appears in Revelation. So there's a lot of um, uh, there, there's a lot of very exciting um, uh, activity going on around her during her life. I don't know an awful lot about her life, which is part of why I got this book. The Shakers, famously, of course, like the Cathars, believed in celibacy, which uh, made uh, replenishing Shakerism a fairly uh, fairly fraught question eventually. And they made delightful furniture, which is a, another sort of an echo of the um, uh, of the of the sort of rejecting the world but building beautiful art within it contradiction that Occitan culture had as well. And I think that just the the period of her life. Um, is an interesting period in American history, and she is obviously, you know, as someone who founded a, a millenarian religion, just worthy of study on that level alone. Am I correct in remembering that she is another product of the aforementioned burned over district? I believe that she predates it. She's in um, uh, she's in Albany County, New York, but she's sort of like at the very beginning of the burned over period. The 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 second American uh, uh, Great Awakening is not until about 20 years after she dies. So you can see her as a precursor or maybe as a post-cursor of the, of the first Great Awakening, but she sort of exists in between them and sets up her, her strange, uh, her, well, her strange um, church, I guess you'd call it. And uh, next we uh, go to increasingly barking realms of Elliptony with uh, Shakespeare by another name, The Life of Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, the Man Who Was Shakespeare by Mark Anderson. And the Shakespeare, I should point out, is in quotes. Yes. It's in ironic, ironic quotes. Because I guess not only was Shakespeare didn't write his plays, but he was also non-existent? Um, I think the theory being that uh, we cannot make uh, a connection between the entirely historically attested uh, landowner and actor Shakespeare and then the, 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 um, uh, the non-Shakespeareans, the anti-Stratfordians, always spell it uh, in one of the eight or nine different ways that Shakespeare spelled his own name, because uh, spelling your own name the same way was not something that was done necessarily every time in uh, the 16th century. Uh, Robert uh, Christopher Marlowe, for example, spells his own name a whole bunch of different ways in his own signatures, and no one ever says that, uh, you know, someone else was, was Christopher Marlowe, um, although some of them say Christopher Marlowe was Shakespeare. And uh, then this is the, uh, the, the, the exciting story of how uh, the Earl of Oxford becomes Shakespeare despite uh, many of Shakespeare's greatest plays being written after the Earl of Oxford died. And I'm sure that we're going to have the same special pleading about how the, um, uh, the shipwreck in The Tempest doesn't either refer to the shipwreck in Bermuda that uh, it exactly parallels and other uh, delights. But I am hoping to get some good information about the Earl of Oxford out of it. And if it's through a ridiculous uh, conspiratorial lens, well, that's all to the good. And I certainly didn't have to buy it new, which is one of the things that I object uh, to doing with uh, particularly crazy or offensive theories. So the fact I was able to get it for basically six bucks for a lovely hardback is uh, kind of a triumph all the way around. And this goes to the question of how you extract reliable facts from a uh, work which you overall characterize as crazy. Mm -hmm. and, and that, I think a lot of it is um, the same way you, you, you sort of check sourcing on any on anything or you should be you look at the footnotes you look at to what extent they're going down to original uh sources and to what extent they're saying now that we've seen these original sources of course we can assume that x and that suddenly becomes solid fact two chapters in later as we saw in chapter two type stuff 
Right. Um, and uh, we now have the vengeful Jean unveiling the hidden agenda of genies. Now, I was heretofore unconcerned about the genie agenda. Uh, Ken, what should I know? Well, um, I think that I can do no better than to quote the first line from the back cover blurb. If you fear one thing in life, fear the djinn. And I think that that is, uh, that, that's just magnificent. The, the djinn are up to stuff. They uh, exist in the, um, uh, in, in the realm of, of quantum physics as well as in the realm of Middle Eastern folklore. I uh, see uh, by the book that they are connected to the shadow people, which is very exciting to me. Um, the, the, much of the United States military interest in the Middle East has been secretly uh, cover for our war against or research into or attempt to harness the djinn. Uh, Philip Imbrogno, uh, the co-author of this book, is uh, one of the many uh, sort of uh, delightful um, occult scholars who combines uh, his uh, mania with insistence that he was privy to various national security secrets. So you can think of him as the genie equivalent of, um, uh, of, of what's his name, uh, Philip Corso, the guy who writes all the UFO books. Um, he is. Uh, it's just. I'm. I'm thrilled with excitement to learn the the vengeful the the secrets of the vengeful Jin, and I can't wait to uh, to learn all of their activities. But I'm sure that they're they're maligned. So well, it sounds so that we've suffered a genie blowback by going over and and messing with them. Yeah, I th I think that that certainly is a is a justifiable argument. Um, that the the, the Jin have been monkeying with us. Uh, what with uh their um. Uh, the hurricanes and secret Muslim presidents and all the other things that they've done to us. I'm I'm very excited to find out what the connection is between American national security policy and the jinn. I'm sure that it's going to be uh, even better than Nazi anti-gravity. And I don't say that about a lot of things. You, you'll have to uh, keep us updated in just how far into the uh, secret Muslim president weeds they, they go on that one. I, I, will, I will definitely um, uh, uh, read and report. And finally, uh, you bought one new book. Yes, uh, and that was the Secret King: The Myth and Reality of Nazi Occultism uh, by Stephen Flowers and Michael Moynihan. And as a uh, the author of an upcoming book about Nazi occultism, uh, what did you uh, find in it, and did you wish you had it a year ago? Oh, I absolutely wish I had it a year ago. This is um, uh, a primarily it's a biography and a large number of translated sources of uh, a guy named Karl Maria Villagut, and Karl Maria Villagut. Uh, turned up in Himmler's sort of trawl for people who were uh, knowledgeable about the ancient glorious Aryan past. And Karl Maria uh, explained that as the reincarnated uh, head of a line of secret priest kings of the Aryans, going all the way back to umpty-ump thousand BC, that he was in, uh, uniquely, uh, uh, uniquely able to differentiate between all the other crazy Aryan theories that were pouring into Himmler's office. And sure enough, every time they would go to Villagut and ask him if he could clairvoyantly explain something, he could. And that's the kind of um, uh, uh, rationality that Himmler looked for in all of his staff. Uh, Villagut designed, for example, the Death's Head Ring and the Dagger of the SS. He was sort of part of the sartorial team there that included uh, fashion designer Hugo Boss. Uh, so he was looking at the designs and going, oh, not evil enough. Not, not so much evil and then he would go back and he would um, uh, uh, psychically uh, tell you what kind of awesome skull uh, ornaments they wore back in uh, the ancient times of the uh, Aryan Atlantis. And this book uh, translates a lot of his writings uh, for the first time into English, <laughs> possibly because they're all daft. Um, 
1938, um, other members of Himmler's staff, who perhaps felt jealous that uh, Villegut was being paid to do this, began to look into his past and discovered that he'd spent a good long time in an insane asylum in Austria, and with uh, credible allegations of beating his wife and attempting incest with his daughters, uh, and he collected stones out of a nearby river and talked to them while he was in the insane asylum, and they simply sort of came to Himmler and said, obviously we have full confidence in uh, Weisthor, that was his cool occult name, was Weisthor, uh, in, in Weisthor's uh, pronouncements, and we would never dream of doubting them, but if his enemies ever found this stuff out, it could be a bad scandal and embarrass the Fuhrer and embarrass the SS. And well so, played, secondary Nazis, well played. Yeah, so um, uh, uh, Villegut's uh, re resignation on grounds of ill health was accepted before he uh, bothered to uh, submit it, which is, again, the kind of efficiency Himmler got out of his subordinates when he wanted to. And he was packed off to a um, uh, dacha on the Baltic Sea and ignored for the rest of the war. And this book um, uh, goes into a great deal of depth on, on Villegut, uh, much of the story I already knew, because, of course, he's mentioned in other sorts of stories. And then uh, it attempts to sort of put him into a larger... Uh, uh, context of the rest of the Nazi occult. And one of the, the goals of these authors, because they are occultists first and uh, runic occultists uh, most especially, is to sort of try and shed the Nazi stigma that runic occultism has gathered, what with it being used by a bunch of Nazis. And so their argument is, runic occultism was just one tiny part of Nazism, and really it shouldn't be, you know, blamed for all that Nazi stuff, which was probably the fault of, I don't know, Christians or someone else. <laughs> right. And, and so they, they uh, as opposed to most books on the Nazi occult, uh, with the exception of books by uh, real historians, of which there are three, um, the, the, the books, most books are, are all very excited to tell you about the Nazi occult. And this book, although being all about the Nazi occult, is sort of um, uh, trying to have, have it both ways, where, you know, it's like, oh yes, this is totally important occultism that you should read, but it didn't influence the Nazis, right. except we're going to put swastikas all over the cover. So, right. you know, it's it's just one of those things. Well, there's, there's the, the part in the process where you get to the marketing guys, exactly. and they, they tell you not to bury the lead. Well, you know, we, we didn't stop driving Volkswagens because of the Nazis, so, Absolutely. you know, occultism. It's, it's, all, it's all good. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I do kind of wish that I'd had this a year ago, because I'm sure that there's more uh, delightful sort of B-list uh, runology in there that I didn't have when I was writing uh, the Osprey book. Uh, but uh, I, don't, I, I think that what it mostly does is it expands on incidents and personalities that I fortunately already knew about. Well, we may uh, get back to this story uh, later on as we draw closer to the release of your Osprey book and have a mega multi-episode uh, uh, discussion of that. Uh, but in the meantime, I think that uh, you and I can agree that we have once more talked about a bunch of stuff. We sure have. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG. Dark Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Shelve us in the library of your soul at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>